Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode of Three Spooked Girls. It is your host, Jessica, and as always, I am joined by my favorite ghoul friend, Tara. Hey, Spooksters. It is another episode this Spooktober, and we are coming at you with some creepy true crime additions this fall. Spectacular. Thank you. It's a spooktacular <laughs> October. Yes. So let's get right in there. As always, you can go to our link tree in the description below, and that'll have all of the things you need to know, like how to find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all the socials. We are on a couple new things now, if you haven't noticed. Mm -hmm. We have this amazing thing called Flick, and it's so that you can come chat with us about the episodes. We're going to tell you what days that we're going to spend dedicated to talking about that episode. So you can come in and chat with us during a designated time so that you have our attention. It's going to be great. And we can discuss these episodes even further. And so that's great. And coming up at the end of this month on October 29th at 5 p.m. my time, so Pacific Standard Time, we are going to do our first ever Podbean live stream. So what you need to know is if you want to hear a live audio stream, you need to go and download Podbean. If you haven't already, it's a great place to listen to your podcast. And once you do that on October 29th at 5 p.m., we are going to come at you live streaming and you'll be able to chat with us during the episode. It'll be kind of like our live stream in Facebook, but it's going to be hosted on Podbean, Mm -hmm. which is exciting. Yeah, I'm super excited. It looks like a cool little setup, so it should be fun. And we got some spooky tales to talk about. We saved them for you for this live, so you're definitely going to want to check it out. Mm -hmm. That's all the business we have for this week, but let's talk about what the drinks we have. So since it's a spooktacular holiday season, I decided to come at you with something that kind of describes the characters in which we are going to be talking about tonight. The name of this drink is Black as Your Soul. Ooh. Right? You make it with lemonade, Bacardi Gold, a dash of activated charcoal, five blueberries, and it says to garnish with a bat. And at first I was like, what the fuck? But then I realized, like, looking at the picture on Pinterest, (laughs) it was like a little cute bat stir. Oh, how cute. Yeah. So if you want to know that, we post it a couple days after. I believe it's on... On Tuesday, so tomorrow. Mm Mm-hmm. You can find that where you can get this fantastic drink and find out where it came from. What are you drinking today, Tara? I picked up Prophecy's Red Blend just because I love their Greek mythology type feel on their labels. They're super pretty. You guys might have seen the canned wine I posted a while ago, but uh, it's fall, so I had to go back to red. So it's a good one. It's a staple and it's pretty affordable. So if you guys haven't tried it. Go pick it up for sure. Yes. The season of white wine has ended and we have now moved into the whole wholehearted bodied drinks. Yes. Unless you're like me and I drink red all year round. It's fine. (laughs) That's true. (laughs) A lot of people drink red all year round, but a lot of people also take the summer to indulge in the whiter grapes. True, true. I actually like for me, I don't really like red wines all that much. I like white wines, but there have been some red wines um, that I'm like, ooh, I like this. Yeah. Here's the thing. With me and red wine, my boss has to pick it for me. My boss is an excellent wine picker. So if she picks it and she describes it to me as something I would enjoy, then I typically do like it. Nice. I have to ask her, like, am I going to like this? No? Okay, I won't do it. (laughs) (laughs) And so now is the time we're going to take a little break for our promos. Please listen. We got some great shows that we're featuring this week. And also a little message from our preferred partner affiliates, which are truly amazing. Check them out. 
This is Weird on the Rocks, a podcast that explores the weird, unusual, strange, and unexplained, all while getting our drink on. Join me every other Monday as I share a different cocktail and discuss true crime, paranormal stories, unexplained phenomena, conspiracy theories, and much more. Find Weird on the Rocks on social media, the website weirdontherocks.weebly.com, and listen on all of your favorite podcast apps. And don't forget to cheers and stay weird. Hello, and welcome to the Realm of Unknown. My name is Shane, and I shall be your guide along this strange adventure into a world all its own, filled to the brim with wonders and mysteries. A podcast that focuses on all things paranormal and supernatural. Join me, your host, each week as we dive deep into unique stories and legends about the unexplained and strange from all around the globe. You can find Realm of Unknown on all your favorite podcast listening platforms such as Apple Podcast, Google Podcast, Spotify, and more. So come join us and take part in our next journey into the Realm of Unknown. Let's face it, most of us are usually glued to our phones. So what if I told you we have a great idea to connect you to friends, family, and your inner detective? Hunt a Killer is the fastest growing murder mystery subscription game that puts you in the mind of a detective. You'll shift through piles of documents, evidence, auto recordings, and case files, eliminating suspects until you crack the case and catch the killer. Hunt a Killer gets you talking and having fun together, whether it's game night or date night. And if you're a detective that prefers to work solo, Hunt a Killer is built so that you can choose how you want to play. With thousands of online community members and 2,000 five-star reviews on Trustpilot, it's no wonder Fast Company named them as one of the most innovative entertainment companies of 2019. Plus, a part of the proceeds of every box goes to the Cold Case Foundation to help fund cold case investigations. John E. Douglas, the FBI profiler who inspired the Netflix show Mindhunter, is the chairman of the board of this nonprofit foundation. It's the perfect activity for fall and winter, and you don't even have to leave your house. Hunt a Killer is an ideal murder mystery Halloween party game. Right now, just for our listeners, you can go to Hunt a Killer and use the code SPOOKED for 20% off your first box. Again, make sure to use our discount code SPOOKED, that's S-P-O-O-K-E-D, for 20% off your first box and to show support for us here on Three Spooked Girls. It's not just about catching the murder. It's about the friends you make along the way. Well, welcome back. I hope you enjoyed that. We are going to now just dive right into our cases. These cases are basically twisted Halloween true crime murders. Yes. And Tara has one guy and then I have a couple of dudes that work together. Mm -hmm. So I'm going to turn it over to Tara now and she's going to talk about her case and then it's going to come back over to me and we're going to talk about my case and then that'll be that. Yeah. Yeah. I'll be that. <laughs> it sounds so much shorter than it is. Like, yeah, you're going to talk and then I'm going to talk and we're done. That's right. They're like, what the fuck? They're like, oh, God, they're just racing through this episode tonight. No. What is happening? No. <laughs> you know, full of the knowledge per use. Yes. Yes. Okay. So my case, I found this witty title because apparently there's a book on it. I didn't have time to read the book yet, but I want to now. This case is known as the Nightmare in Napa. Ooh. Dun, dun, dun. Such a good title. Right? I know. It also sounds like a Lifetime movie a little bit, but it's not. <laughs> Just like if Forensic Files made Lifetime movies. Mm-hmm. So it was the evening of Halloween night in 2004, as we said, in Napa, California. Roommates Lauren Minza, Adrian and Sonia, and Leslie Mazzara were wrapping up a night in passing out candy to trick-or-treaters. The three 26-year-olds would decide to call it a night around 11 p.m. All the girls would head to bed, including Lauren, with her dog, Chloe. <gasps> her name is Chloe? Yes. <laughs> Aww. I know. I love Chloe. Lauren would then wake up around 2 a.m. when she heard her dog growling and also hear movement upstairs as her room was located on the lower level. At first, she just thought it was maybe one of the other girl's boyfriends, but then she started to hear what sounded like an altercation. This obviously set off an instant red flag for Lauren that something was wrong and somebody was in the house. She quietly crept out of her room to see what was going on, and once she heard the blood-curdling scream as she describes, she ran into the backyard and hid until it was safe. I mean, smart. 
but also like leaving other people (laughs) to be vulnerable. (laughs) Right, right, right. So she says that she saw a man leave the house, but she couldn't see too many details. Basically, she just saw the back of him. So, of course, you can't really tell any too many features or anything like that. Mm -hmm. But after he left, she went upstairs to go check on her roommates. But sadly, this is when she would find a really, really gruesome scene. So Lauren checked in on Leslie's room first, since when you go up the stairs, that's the first room you would come across. Mm -hmm. And she discovered that she had been stabbed to death. Oh, God. After seeing this, she rushed over to Adrian's room, and this room was just a wreck. Blood was everywhere. Investigators said that Adrian had obviously put up the fight of her life against the intruder just from the blood spatter and everything being disheveled and things like that in the room. And if you, fun fact, watch forensic files, they do show some crime scene photos. I'll put in the uh, show notes what exact episode and everything that is for you guys. Please, I'd like to watch it. It doesn't help saying season blah, 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 episode, blah, 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 because on Netflix. They're collections. Yeah. Yeah. So and I found it and I watched it. So I'll put that in there for you guys. But you have to love forensic files. It's like. Right. The greatest. (laughs) I know. (laughs) But Adrian was also stabbed and laying there crying out because she wasn't dead. Mm. Lauren rushes to attempt to call 911, but of course, the landline was dead. Thankfully, at this time, even though in the early 2000s, she did have a cell phone, and she went and grabbed this next. While placing the 911 call for her friends, she actually, you know, fight or flight, she jumped in her car and left the house because she was afraid that the attacker would return or was still hiding and hanging out. And at this point, it was kind of like she had to protect herself. It makes sense. It's a little, it's a little like flawed, but it's, it does make sense. Right. And then, sadly, um, Adrian would die on the scene before the paramedics would arrive. As I just said, the crime scene was gruesome as hell. So to give you some perspective on that, they said on the forensic files, usually a team will collect about five to seven samples for blood evidence. They were able to collect 71. Oh, my God. Right. Along with this, they also found plastic zip ties under the window, similar to what law enforcement uses in place of, like, handcuffs outside of a window. Oh, God. And also three cigarette butts. Two of those were in front of the house and one in the backyard. This would suggest early on that the attacker may have been casing the house, kind of biding some time, waiting to attack. Got it. So while authorities conducted their investigation, it appeared that Leslie had been attacked first and was also in bed when she was attacked. So she was probably sleeping, you know, was waking up as soon as she was stabbed. And they also found blood on the outside of the house, suggesting that the attacker had cut themselves when they were in the altercation with Adrian. She was fighting back and stuff like that. So they figured that they may have slipped with a knife or, you know, something like that and then accidentally smeared it on the wall. And it was also on a right wall. So that suggests that they were right handed. That makes sense. As far as potential suspects go right off the bat, Lauren said that the girls had no known enemies. It's that typical. They were very well liked. They were popular, et cetera, et cetera. Leslie was a tour guide at a winery and Adrian was a civil engineer for the Napa Sanitation District. They were both very well liked. So it did kind of make things difficult at first, but they did have a couple people of interest in the beginning. So one was Leslie's ex-boyfriend's father, very specific, but He had essentially been harassing her by calling her a ton before she moved to California. She's originally from South Carolina. I don't know if it was like he was just being like, why did you break up with him? Are you going to get back together with him? Things like that. Basically, all they said was like he was contacting her a fuck ton after she broke things off with the ex. But it was also said she anytime she had a relationship, she left on good terms. So it's kind of weird. But they both were cleared, the ex-boyfriend and the dad, with their alibis and with witnesses that they were in South Carolina, that they were not in California at the time of the murder. So not them. The next one was a handyman who had just recently been in the home for some repair work, but he would be cleared as well. And the authorities would actually go through 200 DNA samples and over a thousand interviews that were friends, families, coworkers, anybody who had any kind of connection with the girls that they would deem as potential suspects, but nothing. Hmm. Then we would jump ahead to September of 2005 and the cigarette buds would come back into play. So... First thing to note is that these cigarette butts had a very unique design on them. It was like a gold design. It ended up being the markings of a specific brand that had a new, I guess, line. I don't smoke, so I'm not sure really what to call it. I guess it would be line. 
of cigarettes at the time. So this new type of cigarettes wasn't available in every store yet. And even the ones that did said they didn't sell very many packs of it because it was so new. They could remember who they sold it to type of thing. That's good because that makes it easier once you find the one person. Yeah. These were camel Turkish gold is what kind of cigarettes they were. But on top of that, the authorities were also able to establish that the DNA from the cigarettes was the same DNA on the zip ties, Mm. which they were able to pick up skin cells from the rubber band, which held the bunch of the zip ties together. And if you don't know, rubber bands are actually pretty porous for that type of thing. And then also the blood that they found on the wall. So everything matched up to the same person. But here we are now almost a year after the murders. and. Something actually exciting did happen. So there was a doctor, his name was Tony Ferdakis, and he had a new type of DNA testing that essentially, the easiest way to describe it is basically focused on ethnicity for profiling the people it's testing on to kind of help with that. So this would eventually conclude that they were looking for a male with light colored hair and a Northwestern European ethnicity and either blue green eyes. Wow, that is oddly specific. Right? (laughs) So. Once the cigarette butts became the focus again, they contacted Lauren to see if she knew anyone who smoked at all or smoked this particular brand of cigarettes. Interesting enough, she said, yes, I can think of somebody. The girls had a friend named Eric Koppel, who not only was a smoker, but this was his brand of choice. Now, because of the location and how horrific this case was, it received all kinds of media coverage and everybody was watching it, including Eric. Now, before the police even had the chance to contact him or bring him in for questioning, anything like that, he actually went and turned himself in and confessed to the murders. Oh, wow. Yeah. But when he was questioned on his motive, it's actually something he never fully explained. And he also never told the police what he did with the murder weapon. But he did say that he used the knife to open the window and then he must have dropped the zip ties out of his pocket or however he was holding. If he was holding them, maybe he dropped them. He then killed Leslie and then went to Adrian's room, fought with her, cut his hand and then left the scene. And then once he was home, he said he burned his clothes and then went to sleep. Another thing to kind of link Eric and the girls to each other was they had this friend named Lily. Eric had actually been engaged to her, but they had recently broken up. So put that in your back pocket. Well, coincidentally, the next day after the murders, Lily called Eric to tell him what had happened. And of course, he took this as his opportunity to swoop in and get back in the good graces with Lily and went over there to console her. Oh. Mm Mm-hmm. Right? Now, this will play into a theory in just a moment. (laughs) It's not really clear why Lauren was spared. Maybe he didn't know about the downstairs bedroom or maybe he didn't know she even lived there. It's not totally clear because, like I said, even in the most recent updates, he's never straight up said his motivation. Basically, we just kind of have theories and what other people say to kind of guess as to why. Interesting enough... Before his confession, Lily and Eric actually ended up making up and got married in February of 2005. Oh. And on top of that, they asked Adrian's mom to be a part of this ceremony and to read a scripture from the Son of Solomon. And Adrian's sister was also a guest at the wedding. Wait, wait, what? Yes. So they were at the wedding because they were all friends. That's a whole new level of sicko. Uh-huh. Because Lily and Adrian actually worked together, so they were really, really close, which makes it even more fucked up as we go. Lily never suspected Eric to have been the killer, which even the worst of the worst, a lot of the time, significant others are usually fooled and have no idea. I mean, hello, Ted Bundy took a little bit. Very true. Yes. So, you know, not too surprising. But like I mentioned, you know, our fave forensic files earlier when I watched that episode, there was a theory because Adrian's mom was actually one of the people they interviewed during this episode. She said that Adrian and others had been telling Lily that she could do better and she needed to break things off with Eric and things like that. Eventually, like I said, you know, they had broken up for a while, whether it was because of that or something else. Who's to say? Mm -hmm. So on the night of Halloween, Eric actually ran into Lily at a party and witnesses say that the two had gotten into an argument. Supposedly, he wanted to get back together and set a new date for their wedding, but she just wasn't interested. 
So he ended up admitting to the police that he was drunk and that the fight added fuel to the fire of him just being pissed the fuck off. So essentially, this fight would be what, if you're going with this, which in my head makes sense, mm-hmm. kind of added to be like, okay, let me go fucking kill Adrian because it's her fault why I lost the love of my life, et cetera, et cetera. So this is, that's what makes the most sense in my mind. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, when he went to court, it was presented that he had a lifelong battle with depression and also suicide. They also tried to say that in men, depression can manifest rage, which is what led him to following through with the acts of these murders. So instead of wanting to kill himself, he decided to kill his ex-fiance's friends, question mark. That's a big leap. Right. But the fact that he cased the house, though, makes me seem like he did at least target Adrian. So... I'm going to go with the prior thing with Adrian's mom sounds a lot more realistic, in my opinion. Mm -hmm. I don't know. It's just one of those things, sadly, we will never know because he's just kind of kept his mouth shut. Maybe never. He might tell eventually. I mean, eventually we, you know, but as as of this point, you know, 15 years later, he has not said shit. Mm -hmm. Allegedly, he was claiming that he had actually planned to kill himself, then last minute decided to go and confess to the murders instead. Got it. But either way, it was never confirmed by the authorities to the, quote, true motive of these murders. But I'm just saying, it seems very probable that something like that did happen kind of thing. Some people also have these wild theories that he, you know, they broke up or whatever, and he was secretly attracted to Adrian, and then it caused issues, and then he just got this rage, and that's why he killed her. But that's just so outland. I mean, I guess it could happen, but it's just, I don't know. It just seems like this is much more probable, the thing with the story, you know, her mom kind of put out. Yeah. And then it's also the question of why did he kill Leslie too? He was drunk. So, you know, he could have not been thinking. Obviously, he wasn't thinking. So just like, well, I don't need any witnesses, especially if he thought it was only those two in the house. So he kills one to get her out of the way and then goes after Adrian. Or here's my thought on that is that he went into Leslie's bedroom thinking it was Adrian's bedroom Mm -hmm. and then goes to attack her, realizes it's not her, but can't like stop the attack. So has to continue the killing. Also, there's a. My, I have another theory that if he just targeted Adrian, it might look a little suspicious mm-hmm. that this girl died and like it's the only one in a house full of three. True. We also don't know if he didn't run downstairs and realize that the other girl wasn't there. Because she was outside. He could have went in her room. You never know. Exactly. And then be like shit and then go back out the way he came in. Yeah, very true. Either way, in December of 2006, Eric pled guilty to two counts of first-degree murder. He was then sentenced to two life sentences in San Quentin without parole, um, and that's where he still is today. And that's really all the updates on there. As far as Lauren, there was updates that she had relocated to Los Angeles and is doing well, and she actually liked being in the bigger city because she actually felt more safe And even though it's kind of crazy because people think, wouldn't you feel safe in a smaller town? But no, this happened in a smaller town. So she kind of feels more safe in the hustle and bustle of a bigger area surrounded by more people. And that was really the last thing from her. I agree with that sentiment. Sometimes when you're in a small town, like I grew up in a very rural area. Right. Like the thoughts that go through your head is if someone were to attack me, no one would hear me. Being in a large city, someone will hear you. It's whether they act upon it. Exactly. Very kind of quick and to the point with my case this week, but when I read it, it was just like, oh my God, just fucked up. And just, I can't believe that they invited one of the victim's moms to not only come to the wedding, but to essentially be in the wedding when he knew what he did just kind of illustrates what kind of fucking monster he was. So, right. And it doesn't sound like he had an issue with her doing it either. No, it doesn't seem like it at all. And I know until we came across the original article we read it in, I had never heard of this case before. And me either. We like to share these lesser known ones. So that is uh, my case on the nightmare in Napa. So I am going to kick it over to you for our bigger case this week. It's kind of well known, but kind of not well known, if that makes sense. Like Mm -hmm. in certain circles, it's well known. But I didn't know about it until a few weeks ago. So, yeah, we're going to be talking about the toolbox killers. Yeah, I'll say real quick, 
I've heard the name, but I don't know much about it. Right. I've also heard this this name be given to several other cases because when I Googled it, like Mm -hmm. a couple other cases popped up, but I knew this is the one that I wanted. So there are two men involved with this case that are known as the toolbox killers. One is Lauren Sigmund Bittaker, and the other one is Roy Norris. Both men at a young age had trouble with the law. And surprisingly enough, they had a lot in common. Like Lawrence's parents or Bittaker, we'll call him Bittaker because I had to look it up. So we might as well just call him Bittaker. He was born September 27th, 1940, and his parents did not want children. So they put him up for adoption immediately. He was adopted by Mr. and Mrs. George Bittaker. He was an infant at the time. George was, he worked for an aviation company and it doesn't really say what his mother did, but starting really young, like around age 12, he was arrested for petty theft and throughout the remainder of his like childhood, he was in and out of the state prisons and everything he did escalated like with most patterns of that end up as violent offenders. One thing to be said about Bittaker is he had an IQ of 138. According to the American Mensa program or Mensa website, an IQ of 130 plus is considered, it's not quite genius rate, but he had a higher intelligence. Because of his IQ, school just was not something he could handle. It was just too tedious. It was just like, why am I here? So he dropped out of high school. Mm, Okay. And he (laughs) just kept doing stupid shit and getting arrested throughout his life. Now, Roy Norris had kind of a very similar upbringing. He was born February 5th, 1948. He was conceived out of wedlock, but his parents, you know, during that time did not want to like seem like the hellions and deviants they were. So they got married. His extended family lived close by. His father was a scrapyard worker and his mother was a drug addicted housewife. Oh, that's great. Right. Because of her addiction, Norris was in and out of foster care. At the age of 16, he sexually harassed a female family member by saying some suggestive stuff to her, which then she turns around and tells his dad and his his dad is like, I'm going to beat the shit out of you. And what does Norris do? He steals a car and he decides to drive because they lived in Colorado. They de- he decided to drive through the Rocky Mountains, and he- there he was going to kill himself by injecting air into his artery. He wasn't successful, and he was... <laughs> Atara's face is just like, holy shit. <laughs> we escalated quickly. <laughs> <laughs> right? It was like, I just said something dirty to my cousin who's in her mid-20s, and my dad's going to beat me, and now I tried to kill myself the omen style. Okay. It's fine. It's fine. At this point in time, since he was 16, he was apprehended as a runaway and returned to his parents, which was not good. Norris dropped out of high school because I don't think Norris was as smart as, say, like, Bittaker was. I just think that Norris was just like, I'm done. Mm -hmm. And he joined the Navy in 1965 and actually was deployed to Vietnam while he was enlisted. And so that was in 1969. And he went to Vietnam, and while stationed there, he decided to start experimenting with heroin and pot, and he got addicted. Okay. So, a few years later, he was honorably discharged, because apparently in Vietnam, you could be addicted to heroin and still serve in the military. Oh, all right then. I mean, I don't know what they were doing, but... (laughs) Right? (laughs) Right. It's funny, because, like... Here's the weird thing. So my dad was in the Navy and he got out, I think, in like 1964, 65. Mm-hmm. And he was stationed in San Diego. So there's like a little possibility these two people like overlapped. That's crazy. Creepy. Over the next few years, Bittaker's crime, like I said, escalated. Um, he had several robberies and he was arrested for a few, but it escalated in 1974 when he was arrested for an assault and attempted murder of a store clerk who was a young supermarket employee by the name of Gary Louie. And he accused Bittaker of stealing. And Bittaker was like, I'm fucking going back to jail. Stab, stab, stab. Oh, fuck. But Gary survived the attack. Jeez. And this is when he was sentenced to serve time in the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. So he's there. And Norris, um, Norris kind of went, didn't really go the whole traditional rob route. He went more the rape route. Oh, no. 
Yeah. Yeah. Buckle in, people. He was, over the next few years, he was charged with several rapes. He was actually institutionalized for about five years. And when he was in the military, he was diagnosed by a psychologist with severe schizoid personality disorder, which I think is like, at the time in the 70s, was like schizophrenia or like bipolar, that kind of stuff. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. In May of 1970, he attacked a female student at the San Diego University campus. That was one of the reasons he went back. So he gets out, and very shortly after he's being released, he literally sees this woman walking down the street, and he goes, hey, do you want a ride? And she says no. So he literally gets, he's on a motorcycle, he gets off his motorcycle, he grabs her by the scarf, twists it, drags her into a bush, and then essentially threatens to rape her. She, fearing for her life, essentially doesn't resist the rape because she's thinking, like, if I just let him do this, he's going to go away, which he did. But then (laughs) she pressed charges. (laughs) Good. Sucks to suck, Norris, right? Right. And he was then captured, sentenced, and he started to serve his sentence at the California men's colony in San Luis Obispo. And if you recall, this is where our dear friend Bideker is at right now. So the two men didn't meet for about a year, but when they met, they have this amazing connection because they're fucking sociopaths. Mm. Mm-hmm. When Bideker met Norris, he said that he kind of like saw something in him. Now, I'm going to inject a theory right here. So Bideker is eight years older than Norris with a higher level IQ. Norris, I'm thinking, is just like your average Joe. So I think Bideker is looking at this dude and is like, I think I can manipulate him to do what I want because he is kind of into the same kind of shit I am. Because Bideker almost stabbed someone to death. And I think he may have enjoyed it a little too much. Ugh. You know. Mm-hmm. That's, yeah, that's exactly what I was thinking as soon as you said that. Right. So I think there's a little bit of a manipulation thing happening here. Mm-hmm. So the, basically the two bonded over their crimes and Norris began talking about how he was essentially a sexual sadist. He loved the whole concept behind like the torture of the rape. And for some reason, Bideker was just like, well, not some reason. The dude's a fucking sociopath again. So, you know, Bideker was like, this is cool. We should talk about when we get what we're going to do when we get out. Ugh. So. Bideker makes a statement to Norris that's fucking creepy as hell. He says to him, you know, if I ever raped a woman, I'd probably have to kill her. Right. Right here, Norris. This is a quality friend. You should definitely hang out with him for the rest of your life. Just saying, like BFF material right here. They spent all of their time alone in prison, basically discussing how when they got out, they were going to rape and kill teenage girls because teenage girls are, you know, in the 70s are impressionable. Well, they're still now, but especially in the 70s, they were impressionable. They thought the world was safe and they could easily overpower these young girls. So in October of 1978, Bideker was released. And this is the part that pisses me off. This is the 70s. And he obtained a job as a skilled machinist for $1,000 per week. Oh, wow. In the 70s, he's like fucking raking that shit in. He's got tons of money. Mm-hmm. So, you know, he's out there working for three months, waiting for his buddy Norris to come get the fuck out of jail or prison. And in January of 1979, Norris was released. They met up in February because it would be way too obvious to meet up right in January. And they began to talk about taking their plans they had in prison and turning them into realities. So the one thing they realized they needed is some sort of transportation. So they bought a van. So they bought a 1977, which is like, I'm like, okay, this is really creepy. They bought a silver 1977 GMC cargo van that was windowless, had a large passenger side sliding door. And guess what the fuck they nicknamed this thing? Murder Mac. Oh, joy. Right. Because they're seriously deranged. They realized that this van was perfect for their crimes because they could essentially just pull up next to a teenage girl and open the door and they could get her in the van without having to open the door all the way. To say these crimes were premeditated is a fucking understatement. Mm, Yeah, just a little bit. Mm -hmm. From February of 1979 to June of 1979, they picked up 20 hitchhikers, did not harm them. And just practice luring women into their van. They use this time as, you know, research. Jesus. It's the R&D phase of their plans. 
They basically were trying different kinds of pickup lines, what makes women comfortable to get in their car. So they did this. So if you were one of those 20 women who took a ride from Bineker and Norris and you lived, good job. Right? Jeez. They also were looking for the perfect place to commit said murder, rapes and murders. And in April of 1979, they found the perfect little road. It was a road in the San Gabriel Mountains that was like a fire road. And it was secured and had a lock on it. So what did these two motherfuckers do? They went over and they took the lock off of it and replaced it as their own. So essentially, anyone else who drove up there wouldn't know the difference. But these two could just easily access this road. At this point, they've done their research and they've decided it's it's in the middle of it's the end of June. They really want to start their spree. So, okay. I'm going to say this right now. These were not nice men. They did really horrible things. I'm going to keep it as less gruesome as I possibly can, but it might trigger. Just saying. Because again, these are teenage girls. On June 24th, 1979, Lucinda Lynn Schaefer, or is better known as Cindy, was staying with her grandparents. Her grandmother had dropped her off at a Presbyterian church in Redondo Beach, and she was walking home from a meeting. About 7.46 p.m., Nora spotted her. Cindy had blonde hair, and apparently that's something Norris thought was quite beautiful. And he said to Bitnicker, there's a cute little blonde. They decided as she passed that she was going to be their first victim. Norris ran up behind her, covered her mouth, and drug her into the van. Obviously, they were worried about people being able to hear her scream, so they just blasted the music in the van. They took her up to the fire access road, and at this point... There was this yellow box, and it was like a fire hydrant box out in the middle of the area. I don't think they had like an actual like fire hydrant hydrant. I think it was just like where the hoses would connect was in there. Mm -hmm. And they backed the van up to it. One of the things that was said about Cindy is that at first she was very upset, screaming like any other person would be in this situation. But she regained her composure and had full control. And once she did this, she like stopped crying, basically feeding into the terror. This was their first time raping. So they both ended up committing the act. But then Bitnicker ended up strangling her with a coat hanger. If you want the details, you can literally go read one of the sources, but I'm not going to. And they essentially discarded her body in a canyon nearby. When Norris was like, why are we just leaving the body? Bitnicker said, the animals will eat her up so there won't be any evidence left. God. Mm-hmm. So two weeks after Cindy's death, the boys were just like, we got to do this again. And they went out and they came across Andrea Joy Hall. She was 18 years old, and on July 8th, 1979, she was picked up hitchhiking along the Pacific Coast Highway. She willingly got into their van, and they were taking her along with them. They had done this several times before and actually hadn't gone through with it. Uh, essentially, they would trigger each other by if they wanted to continue by saying, hey, can you get me? Do you want a cold drink? And then... The person would say yes, and they'd be like, okay, let's get one in the back of the van. So the victim would go to the back of the van, and then Norris would attack, or vice versa, depending on who was driving. But most of the time, it was Bitnicker was driving, and Norris was in the back. Mm -hmm. So this is what happened to Andrea. They took her to the same place as Cindy. They basically did the same thing, except for they Bitnicker, again, with his escalation, decided to take Polaroids of her. The thing is, is that Norris kind of starts taking this weird thing where he's not like he's involved with the rape, but not in the murder. And he's really kind of like trying to talk Bitnicker out of it every time. Like, do we really have to kill them? Can't we just let them go? Like with the first girl, he he was going to be like, hey, here's here's my number. Here's my address. Like, if you need anything, let me know. I'm really sorry this happened. We're just really fucked up. Like, you know. And then they end up killing them, right? So the same thing ended up happening after that, except for she wasn't killed by strangulation. In that aspect, they went into their toolbox and took an ice pick and put it through her ear. This didn't kill her, which to me, I was like, are you serious? Like that, I would just want to die. So Bitnicker ended up strangling her. Oh, poor thing. Right. Oh, my God. I'm just like my heart. Then again, they they disposed of her body in the same way before. On September 3rd, 1979, 
Mind you, these all happened within five months of each other. Jackie Doris Gilliam, 15, and Jacqueline Lee Camp, 13, were hitchhiking to the beach when this van came up and asked them if they wanted a ride and some pot. The girls were like, sure, let's do this, you know, because it was, you know, summer of love, that kind of stuff. Mm -hmm. The girls noticed that they weren't heading to the beach, but to the mountains. So they started to panic. Norris then attacks Jackie and we're going to call Jacqueline. We're going to call her Leah because that's what everyone else called her. So Norris attacks Jacqueline and Leah tries to get out of the van. But basically what happens is when she opens the door, Bitnicker stops it and then runs around and ends up punching her back in. Some people in a local tennis court saw him and said, what's going on? He's like, oh, no, she's just tripping on acid really bad. Like, don't worry about it. They started to drive up towards where they normally would take them, but the van's AC was kind of broken. And so they decided to pull off where there was this like huge tree on the side of the road where they could back the van in and basically be in the shade and be unseen. This is where the men, because when they first pull over and ask the girls, they ask him how old they are. And they both say like 16. Well, they tell the girls like you have to tell the truth. Well, it comes out at this point that Leah is 13. So they're like, we can't do anything sexual to her because she's 13. You know, they had to have some sort of a moral compass. Oh, God. Right. That's complete sarcasm for anyone who thinks I'm being serious. (laughs) Yeah. So... All of their attention of sexual um, assault was put onto Jackie. And essentially, it was basically two days worth. I wouldn't say like two days worth of consecutive, but essentially they were there. The guys took shifts sleeping. So then they drive these girls up and they take them out of the van and they're on this like trail. And the girls are in the van and Norris goes up to Bitteker and he's like, hey, like, do we have to kill them? Like, we could just let them go. They'll probably be very grateful we let them go and they won't say anything. And he's like, absolutely not. We have to kill them. We have spent two days with us. They've seen us like, you know. So Norris goes, okay, but can we like kill them quickly so that they don't suffer? And Bitnicker said, no, they're only going to die once. So what's the point? Wow. He's real class act, this mother. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So essentially what happens is they take Jackie out of the van first. They basically tell her, like, this is your last time you're going to have to get out of the van before you go home. So she's complying. And then they do the ice pick and strangle her as well. And then they go and they get Leah out of the van. And Leah is essentially drugged up on sleeping pills. And she's very disorientated. And they were like, okay, again, this is the last time you're going to get out of the van before you go home. But Norris hits her in the back of the head with a sledgehammer. And then Bitteker ends up strangling her. The thing is, is that because she was 13, they had this big like conflict about her being like a virgin. So while he's strangling her, he yells, you wanted to stay a virgin, now die a virgin. So he's truly a horrible person. Seriously. So then they discard her, their bodies kind of close by near an embankment. But there was some rains between the time that they this happened and then they were looking for the bodies so they couldn't actually find them. Mm-hmm. On October 31st, 1979, which is what brings us into a Halloween murder. This is their last victim. And her name was Shirley Lynette Linford. She was 16 and she was essentially hitchhiking home from a Halloween party. This van pulls up near her and she recognizes the driver. It's Bitnicker. And apparently she works at a restaurant and he frequents the restaurant. So she, of course, trusted him. So she gets in the van and Norris is like, hey, do you want some you want some pot? And she's like, no, thank you. I'm a good girl. Not that smoking pot makes you a bad person, but like it was illegal at the time, (laughs) you know. Mm -hmm. And so she refused. And essentially at this point, Norris just fucking attacks her. And Bitnicker is like all excited and he ends up trading places with Norris and Norris ends up driving. Now, this is where this gets really, truly fucked up. So as this has happened during the last two cases with Jackie, they started to actually audio record what they were doing and they were still taking Polaroids. So um, Norris is driving around just a little bit sporadically and Bitnicker begins his assault and he starts to record what's happening. 
And of course, he's tormenting her and torturing her and violating her. And it's all being recorded. And she's screaming and she's, you know, it's not a good thing. Essentially, after this, they go to do their normal thing where they would essentially go to kill her. And Bitnigger looks at um, Norris and is like, you know what? You haven't actually killed anyone and you need to kill someone. I think he was feeling a little lonely on his killing spree. So essentially, Norris then strangles her with a coat hanger. And it said that the coat hanger, the circle around her neck ended up being the size of a silver dollar. Oh, my God. Right. They decided they didn't want to have their same M.O. when they got rid of the body. They basically what they did is they threw it into someone's front yard into a bed of ivy. <gasps> mm-hmm. Oh, because they wanted to see what the press would do. What? Of course. OK. So obviously there's people looking into these. Um, Detective Paul, I th- believe it's pronounced Bynum. He was assigned to these cases. So they had no leads. This was really before forensic could come in and like really help out. So they were kind of screwed, essentially. But in November of 1979, Norris meets up his old buddy from the men's colony as well by the name of Joseph Jackson. Now, Norris, this is where my theory has kind of come into play. So Norris has been raping and killing with Bitnicker, and he just meets this old buddy of his and then just tells him everything. This is what we've done. And Jackson, being like the father of two teenage daughters, is like, holy shit, you two need to be off the fucking street and goes and tells the police. He gets an attorney. He tells the police. He's like, hey. And at first they're like, sure, whatever. Mm hmm. And then the detective, Detective Paul, gets it and Paul's like, wait, wait, what? Now, the great thing about it is, is that these two had just been picked up for raping a woman, allegedly raping a woman on September 30th. She basically, it was in a hotel in Burbank, and she basically was able to point them out in um, the pictures. But when they were in the police lineup, she couldn't pick them out. I'm assuming there was some sort of Ted Bundy facial hair thing happening where they look different and she couldn't point them out. So Norris was released, but Bitnicker wasn't because he had pot in his pocket. Hmm. So he was in there for violating his parole. So Paul, De- Detective Paul, who I really love throughout this case, and I'm really, truly heartbroken of how this ends for him. He basically puts a tail on Norris. And on November 20th, 1979, he's arrested for violating his parole because when they See him, he's selling pot. So now they have this. They have these two people and they start this investigation on them. And when they go to Bitnigger's apartment, they find like 500 fucking Polaroids of teenage girls. Uh. Right. Not all of them like bad. Like some of them were just like girls walking like they were. Oh, okay. Yeah. Not like not all of them were murdery porn slashy pictures some of them were literally just like when they were doing their scouting Mm -hmm. they also searched the van where they found the sledgehammer a plastic bag full of lead weights a book on police radio frequencies a jar of vaseline two necklaces that belonged to their victims and the tape recording of the abuse of shirley linford at norris's home they found a bracelet that was shirley's and um they found more polaroids so here's where this gets weird so Ten days later, Norris goes, hi, I want to talk, and confesses everything. Just detail tells the timeline. And basically what he says is, I'll confess and I will testify against Bitnicker, but I get a lesser sentence. Death penalty off the table. Wow. Which this is my theory that it's like, here's this kid. I mean, he wasn't a kid, but he was kind of a kid. You know, I mean, he was in his essentially 30s at this point like he was just 30 something i think he was really manipulated by this guy i mean granted he was already a crazy sociopath who raped people but i don't think he would have ever escalated to murder don't know so in february of 1980 official charges were filed um five counts of murder bitnicker is completely denied bail norris gets a bail of ten thousand dollars and I'm like, $10,000 to get out of jail, you just, what, have to put 10% down, which is, what, a thousand fucking dollars? Isn't that what you do is you put, like, 
10% of the bail down. Yeah, I think so. Something like that. Something like that crazy fucking nonsense. So I was like, wait, he could just pay $1,000 and get out. So that was in February. But in March, uh, March 18th, 1980, Norris pled guilty to five counts of first degree murder, one count of second degree murder, two counts of rape and one count of robbery because he took the bracelet. Okay. In May of 1980, he was sentenced to 45 years to life. He would be eligible for parole in 2010. He didn't even go to his parole hearing, which is like an automatic deny. Like, if you don't go, they're like, well, if you don't fucking show up, we don't give a fuck. So you Mm -hmm. can sit in there. I think he kind of figures that he needs to be in in prison. Now, Bitnicker is a little bit of a different thing. Originally, he's like, I didn't do it. And then he's like, okay, I did it. But like, you can't like it's like weird how he acts. Right. So he was actually charged with 29. He had 29 charges which were kidnapping, rape, sodomy, murder, criminal conspiracy, and possession of a firearm. When he was at his uh, arraignment, the judge, you know, like, they're supposed to ask you, like, how do you plead? And he didn't say anything. He just sat there and was like, "Mm mm-mm. So the judge entered a not guilty plea. So I had a question. Could the judge have entered a guilty plea for him? I don't know. Be like, boom, you guilty. (laughs) Maybe you'll speak then. Essentially, it was going to trial. So... Trial began January 19th, 1981. Judge Thomas Fredericks was residing. The star witness for the prosecution was Roy Norris. And he began his testimony on January 22nd, 1981. He basically was just sat there and told the whole damn timeline from like the time they met in prison to all their conspiracy talking to getting out to getting the van to doing their hunting, everything. He just was like word vomited. Bitnicker is a true sociopath in the fact that he figured no one was smart enough to catch him. He showed pictures of Jackie and Leah to one of his neighbors, like not like the bad pictures, but like just of their faces. And he said, (laughs) he's like, my girls don't talk anymore. (gasps) Right. Fucking sociopathic. Also, so when he's arrested and is sitting waiting for trial, he tells Bittnicker tells his cellmate about all of these brutal things in a bragging thing. So guess guess who gets to get out early because he's going to turn, you know, state against his cellmate. <laughs> this dude. The one of the things that did that kind of shocked everyone is that the prosecution played all 19 minutes of the tape. Oh, wow. Mm hmm. Shirley's mother had actually testified because she could give like she had the authority to say that's my daughter's voice. Oh, man. They played the whole thing. Several people who, because like 100 people a day came to watch this thing. Mm-hmm. And um, several people ran from the courtroom. In fact, even the prosecuting attorney had to leave and the media ran up to him. There's a documentary that's in the sources and it's a very good documentary because it's actually, they're actually talking about the death penalty and like how where it is in the state, but they're using this case to show like how it how it was overturned. But they were talking about it and they get Stephen Kay, who is the prosecuting attorney. And I just absolutely adore this man. He like comes running out and he's upset. And they're like, after all this time, you've heard it several times. It still makes you this upset. And he just like goes to answer the question and then just breaks down crying. Because it's, like, horrific. And it's, like, this is how people should act to this, not how Bitnicker is just sitting in there, like, it's nothing. So on February 9th, 1981, they do their closing remarks. So it, the case didn't, the trial didn't go very long. Mm-hmm. Stephen Kay, who, as an attorney, didn't necessarily think that the death penalty was good for all cases, apologized to the jury for asking them to make the decision whether he should be put to death. Because he understood the gravity of what he was asking them. The jury only deliberated for 90 minutes. My theory is they just wanted lunch. And they came back and they found him guilty of all 20 or all however many. On March 24th, he got his sentencing and he was sentenced to death. So I was like, wow, this is really that that was quick. Like they went from catching them in November to March. He was being sentenced to death. That was really fast. So his first date of execution was set for December 29th, 1989, 
And um, he appealed and he got a stay of execution. Really quick turnaround because in June of 1990, he got another date and the U.S. Supreme Court was saying like, oh, no, because he had an appeal a little before that or a date a little before that. But then on June 11th, 1990, that's when um, the Supreme Court was like, nope, you have to uphold this. But Mm -hmm. it got a stay of execution within the state. This became a big thing because there were several like California Supreme Court justices that would overturn the vote to like overturn these cases. And it made people quite upset. In the 80s or in like the early 90s, 80s, we actually voted. I didn't vote. I was too young (laughs) (laughs) to kind of like they were trying to get away from the death penalty. And there was like this weird thing that was happening because like for 25 years they didn't execute. And then they were trying to bring it back in California because like people like Charles Manson was getting a stay of execution. People like that. Basically, this mother, which is really interesting that your guy is in San Quentin because my guy is on death row in San Quentin. Yeah, I know. I was thinking earlier, I was like, we both picked people from California. So, right. (laughs) But they're not friends because Bittnicker is like one of those high profile cases. Mm -hmm. So basically, like he doesn't do anything else like with any other inmates. He just goes to his cell and then like they literally have to take him to shower Mm-hmm. So, you know, and he's in like the gross cell area of San Quentin. <laughs> Super isolated. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, Bendiker is kind of a dick, not just because of like the raping and the murdering, but because he's decided to use our justice system to kind of boost his case. He has filed 40 frivolous lawsuits against California Department of Corrections. Mm. These are ranging from everything from they took... He's saying they've taken up to 250 pictures, like pinup pictures of girls off his walls to the fact that they gave him like broken cookies and a soggy sandwich at lunch. God. Mm-hmm. By the way, did you know that if you file enough frivolous lawsuits, you can actually be like held accountable? No, I didn't. Hm. Mm-hmm. So he actually was brought up on charges for filing too many. There's a name. I Sorry, I didn't write it down. I apologize. Um, it was in the documentary. It went too quickly. I apologize, guys. But it was essentially he's just like filing all of these like frivolous lawsuits because it keeps him relevant and somewhat in the press. But also um, people have to take a step back when you file a lawsuit and be like, OK, well, he can't be executed right now. There is I know that Newsom, I believe, did a moratorium because like the guy who last issued it is, I think, retired or something along those lines, if I recall. And Governor Newsom has done it because I think the what California is really trying to do is it's not that people are against the death penalty in California. We're not super hippy dippy like everyone thinks we are. But I think what it is, is that they want to fix the justice system before they send a bunch of innocent people, because that's one of the bigger things is that there have been proven cases of innocent people being put to death. And of course, death is irreversible. So it's more like they're trying to get the justice system to, like, clean up their act before they just start handing out death sentences here in California, which for me is kind of upsetting because you have someone like, you know, the Golden State Killer who most likely will spend the rest of his days in prison versus, you know, actually, Mm -hmm. you know. And it is said that they believe that Bittnicker will pass away of natural causes well before he actually Cause he's got to be in what his seventies now. Probably, yeah. Sounds about right. I would do math, but I turned my phone off, so I can't do math. Getting up there. <laughs> <laughs> I could do math on paper. Hold on. That's fine. Sorry, I have to do it now. He's seventy nine. Yeah, he's about to croak. The oldest dirt. So there's just one other sad thing along this case is that Detective Paul, who um, apparently was a really great detective, he this case really affected him personally. I guess he was one of those people that like all the women thought was handsome and he always had such a high regard for women. And this case actually legitimately broke him and he actually ended up committing suicide because he thought that his um, he thought that Bittnicker and Norris would eventually get out of prison and they would come to retaliate against him and kill his wife and daughter. So he killed himself so that they could not get revenge. The uh, prosecuting attorney also said that he had nightmares throughout this whole case because of how gruesome and everything it was. So these guys were truly fucked up. 
and this is Halloween related, is their last murder was on Halloween. So that's pretty much it for us. Make sure if you want to see our stuff, check the the link tree below that gets you to all of our socials. It also takes you to our Patreon. If you want to support the show, go there and um, you can sign up for a little as a dollar and get cool bonus stuff. And our $5 and up patrons get video and other kinds of bonus content. And they'll actually be getting a vlog from our most recent trip that Tara and I took together. Mm -hmm. And that was a lot of fun. If you didn't know, we were in Atlanta for about four days. Did some really fun activities. Met some fun, fun people. It was amazing. Uh, We were at a podcasting conference and Tara and I probably thought we were going to be the only people in our true crime and paranormal niche. But we met some wonderful other ladies who were just the whole experience was fantastic because of them. And, you know, because Tara and I spoke. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that was cool, too. Yeah, that was awesome. That, too. (laughs) Yeah. And we have you to thank for that, Spooksters, because without you, we wouldn't have a podcast. And um, we love our podcast and we love you guys. Yes, yes. Bye. Bye, guys.